Welcome to episode 76 of Honestly Unbalanced, and we are chatting to Mr. Embodiment himself, Mark Walsh. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He's the author of multiple embodiment books. He's the host of the Embodiment Podcast, which is over a million downloads. He has the Embodiment Channel on YouTube with over 15 million views and led the Embodiment Conference, which consisted of a thousand teachers and half a million delegates. That's pretty intense. He founded the Embodiment Facilitator course and has trained over 2,000 embodiment coaches in over 40 countries. He's worked with loads of organizations from the military to yogis to lots of NGOs and lots in the corporate world. He's worked in war zones. He's entertained over 50,000 children, headlined events, taught all over. He's an Aikido black belt and has 25 years experience of other martial arts with yoga, bodywork, improv comedy, conscious dance and meditation all featuring in his life. We chat about embodiment. Obviously, that's going to be a big topic. We chat about suicidal alcoholic stage of his life to now being a coach and a trauma teacher. What it's like to actually be manly. Can anything be yoga? Having self-awareness around our habits and living consciously. Addiction to self-improvement. Mindfulness as coming back to. How to manage trauma as a yoga teacher. And following your inner yes. Mark is a really unique character. I love him to pieces and been lucky enough to spend time informally with him all over. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, you'll really enjoy this. Right, fun fact for you. If consumers would only wash their clothing one in 10 uses, we could save 47 million tons of CO2 and 4.5 billion cubic meters of fresh water worldwide. You might be thinking that sounds a little bit gross, especially for active wear, but today's podcast is brought to you by Leisurewear and activewear brand Universal Performance, IEUP. They've got technology in their clothing called Stay Fresh. It means bacteria, molecules are permanently broken down on contact, meaning you can get away with actually not washing your clothes that much and they will still smell great and you will save a huge amount of water in the process. So this brand, UP, they're not only kind to water usage, uh, they use sustainable fabrics, they're responsible, they don't support fast fashion, they're fair to all of their workers, including the craftspeople that make their products. And the clothing looks cool. It looks timeless. I love it. So if you want to check them out, feel free to head on their website. Their website is up.clothing. That's it. UP, up.clothing. And you can find them on Instagram as well uh, via the same channels, up.clothing. Give them a little peruse. I'm sure you'll find something you love and you know every time you exercise then you're being kind to the planet. A few little more perks for you and some notices. Number one, if you fancy a Lifeform mat, code Hustler will get you 10% off. If you haven't come across Lifeform, they are, in short, the best yoga mats you can get. And they are a B, -certif B Corp certified company, meaning they also are, good, are a force for good in the world. Holly has a sound 
healer teacher training coming up soon head to hollyhusser.com to find out more i've always got lots of workshops on and i'm actually heading to manchester in january i haven't been there for quite a few years so manchester i'll see you in january for some workshops and some cpds honestly unbalanced the first time i encountered you which well i guess that's about seven years ago maybe Maybe more, who knows? But the first time I encountered you, I was quite amused because I think it was the fact, you, you stating that you thought you could beat up most other yoga teachers. I think for that, sure, yeah. for that, sure, that was my first intro. <laughs> most Buddhists too. There's one Buddhist I think I know that could have me in a fight, plus obviously the Shaolin temple. But um, yeah, most yoga teachers. That, that's an important thing to start with, Adam. I'm glad that we've, uh, you know, <laughs> The epicenter of my career and work, right there. Especially but an audience of yoga teachers. The reason, the reason I kind of wanted to allude to that now, because obviously you're getting yourself in really good shape at the moment, like the best shape of your life I've seen on your social media. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other, we were both semi-naked in the sauna. But you're you're oh you're in uh, you're in good shape. Uh, but you've talked a lot about, I guess, manliness and the importance of being kind of strong as a man. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit to that. Sure. So I'm certainly not a fitness teacher, um, though I do work out. Most of my practice, I guess we could call embodied practice. So for me, this is more about character development than bicep development. So while sort of, you know, physical health and fitness is great, I do that. You know, I do my cold shower this morning, you know, I do things for that. For me, actually building who you are as a person through physical practice is more what it's about. And I think that can be done in the gym. Uh, it should be done in yoga if we're going to call it yoga. Um, it has traditionally been done in the martial arts, which was the beginning of my own kind of journey before I got into yoga and meditation and dance and body therapy and all these other body things. Um, so I guess that's what I'm most interested in is how we develop ourselves as people through the body as a medium for that. And did it start for you with the body before you moved on to this? No, it started for me with wanting to learn to fight um, because I was involved in some dodgy activities. And the second reason um, was I I was suicidal and alcoholic and I had a as a teenager and I had a kind of longing for something else. Like I knew there need to be more to life and I was cognitively pretty smart. Like I read a lot of books, you know, I did well in school very easily. And I thought, well, it's not about being smarter. And when I, you know, went to the gym for the first time, I don't think the answer's here, you know. Um, and then I discovered the sort of the martial arts, then I said yoga and other things. And I realized like, okay, there's something here that isn't part of our normal education and just found it tremendously good for me um, as a young man growing up, as a, you know, talk about kind of manliness, you know, I didn't really have any models for that. Mm. It certainly wasn't my, particularly my father. And to suddenly be in a world of men and a kind of uh, competence hierarchy that actually made sense where I could learn about actually virtues, which is something we don't really talk about or teach anymore in, in Western education. For me, it was like, oh, wow, there's a whole other kind of education out there. Mm. And I, there's not many places that offer that to young men, are there? I think martial arts are one of the few. I think bo- any kind of combat sport does that to some degree, but there was so much, I guess, tradition with martial arts, a bowing and the respect. You know, I've been both in martial arts dojos and spent decades in boxing clubs. There is some, you know, there is so- there are some similarities, but it's more explicit in martial arts, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, 
any practice which is difficult, for example, will be character building, to mm. use an old phrase. Um, you know, where it's you know, weightlifting, you know, boxing, whatever. Though I think the kind of Asian traditions have this dough idea, a path dough. So they've made it very explicit. And, um, you know, it's part of Japanese education to do kendo and judo, for example, or, um, you know, archery and naganita, which is like spear work, was finishing school for young ladies. You know, this is men and women. Um, so these are this is a sort of a concept that was refined perhaps in Asia, though we also see it coming organically in things like um, extreme sports, for example, or like where I'm, I'm in Portugal right now, there's lots of surfers and they'll they'll talk about how surfing transforms them and change them, but maybe they're struggling a little bit with the language or a framework for that. So I've kind of really broken it down and I said, right, well, here are the skill sets you can build. Um, so I, I train a lot of coaches and they like that kind of less esoteric, more like practical mm -hmm. skill set way of looking at what I would call embodied education. And what about when, because you just said someone that does windsurfing, they might say you know, how much they get from it and how it is a, it's a practice of self-inquiry. And this touched on a, on a post you put on Instagram a while ago. What if they said, that's my yoga. My yoga practice is my windsurfing. Can it be? And I don't think so. But what, what, what are your thoughts on that? What is yoga and can anything be yoga? <laughs> well, a chipmunk isn't yoga. Um, words have meaning, <laughs> right? So I think there's two ends of a spectrum if we define anything. One is to be sort of very rigid and fascist about it, saying, you know, yoga's only my teacher's yoga and what I decide and that's it. The other end of the spectrum is kind of postmodernism, which is everything's anything you say it is. And, you know, I identify as a tack helicopter and um, <laughs> yoga can be anything I want because who are you to tell me what to do, you know? Mm. And I think maybe somewhere in the middle is a better way of defining words. But to come back to your question, um, can anything be a yoga? Well, anything can be a personal growth vehicle. For me, a yoga, we could talk about that. And obviously, traditionally, there wasn't just like asana practice. That was quite a small part of traditional practice. So as I understand it, you know, back to yoga and Raja yoga, other forms of yoga. Um, so anything can be a practice. I think it's easier for something that involves the body to be a practice because this is the most manifest kind of most obvious form of being a human. It's mm -hmm. the part, you know, it's hard to change your spirit or your mind, but it's relatively easy to work with the body because mm -hmm. it's right here and there. And, and I think if they don't involve some sort of edge, some kind of difficulty or existential element, that would be difficult. And I think what something like surfing clearly develops people, it clearly changes people, it clearly impacts people, windsurfing, whatever, but it might lack a framework or a tradition. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we do a martial art or, or you know, uh, path of yoga, there's a framework and a tradition which could be helpful um, or a kind of modern context like the coaching work I do where we've kind of worked out a whole structure and framework that just saves people a lot of time because mm. you can develop one part of your character and totally miss a load more. Mm. And what often people do is they pick a practice that deepens their neurosis. Right, oh, they just really? pick something that makes them more crazy as they are. What was that, Holly? I just said, really? Well, why would you say that is? Well, we're all attracted to what's easy and comfortable, yeah. right? Mm. And it's like everybody likes the smell of their own brand. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> 
And and so so you know, I remember I was at, I was at Tri Yoga once in London, and I was doing like a couple of weeks there. Where I was going to all the classes, trying. I like to try new things and see different approaches. They got loads of great teachers there, so I was I was kind of camped out there. I remember going. There was like a rocket Ashtanga hardcore London athletic death yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know the type I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And then there was yin yoga afterwards. I thought, oh, that's a nice combo. I'll do those on my Tuesday evening. So I went to the first one and it was all these like type A personality London bankers <laughs> and stuff, you know, charging in, doing their practice. And then I went to the yin class and all this like nice feminine people like, hey, welcome to the class. You know, it's really nice to see you. And I was like, you motherfuckers are in the wrong classes. <laughs> wow, yeah. Because <laughs> the first group of people were just making themselves, or they're already strong that way. They already got that yang driving, pushing, and we need that in life. And the second group of people already had the open, accepting, go with the flow, yin side of life. And I mm. thought, you know what? If you just want to be comfortable, that's fine. And sometimes it's nice just to do what we enjoy. Mm. Right, like when I lift weights, I get to just go raw, and it's fun, you know. But that's not growing me. Yeah. I mean, it's not growing my range. I I often like the idea that yoga isn't meant to be making you happy. Yoga isn't meant to necessarily be fun. Yoga is a practice of self inquiry, and for you to actually have anything of value, you can take off the mat into real life. You need there to be subjective challenge, mm. and you need to regulate your mind and breath through that. Is your yoga a holiday or a school mm. for valid and you can combine to some extent but you can't chase two different rabbits well, yeah happens. so are you learning something which by definition learning happens in a learning zone not the comfort zone mm. or are you doing a purely restorative comfortable bliss out gooey nice practice which i love by the way i like both of these things which you kind of learn from the long way around maybe but it's not really you're not having the same setup for these two different goals and as a teacher you might combine them to some extent but ultimately i think we have to say what we're interested in and if you just want to be comfortable that can be great you know have a glass of wine and a bar of chocolate we all like that you know but that's let's not pretend you're actually building your skill set or your range as a person doing that I love so that. It's, you might have answered this already a little bit earlier, but coming back to what you do, if someone asked you what is embodiment, how could you define that in a nutshell then? Because you hear the word thrown around a lot in the wellness industry, but I'd like to know oh, what you, you think do. it is. That's, that's mostly my fault, Holly. I apologise. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks for not asking this straight out the bat in the interview. I like that you jumped, jumped in. Normally this is the first question I get. Yeah. No, I used, someone would say, oh, you're Mr. Embodiment, interviewers kept saying. What is that? few definitions okay so um <laughs> how is your body different from that cup you've got right so you've got a cup in your hand there you're, you're just drinking from right so that's an object that you own it's a thing it's not part of you it's not it doesn't have consciousness doesn't have awareness unless we're getting really philosophical and it's it's just a thing you own it's an object that also has an ethical consequence. Like you can just pick up that cup, but if you just try to pick up another human being in the street, they might have something to say about it, <laughs> right? Because it doesn't have free will. It doesn't have its own ethical boundaries, its own rights, right? So there's quite a profound difference between you and a cup, yeah? yeah. And if someone treats you like a cup, I know you've got a young baby right now, that's, that's, it's, it's, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel good to be objectified, yeah? So our, our body 
this is a kind of fun, poetic, long-winded way of just saying our body is a key part of who we are. It's not an object. It's this part of our subject, part of our part of being Adam, part of being Holly, part of being Mark, right? It's just it's there. Um, embodiment is the study of that. So the study of the subjective part of the body, we could say the study of how we are. It's a very simple sentence, how we are, but it's the manner of our ontology, to use a long word. All that sounds a bit complicated. Couple of simple ways to say it. Embodiment can also be the thought as the umbrella term for all the body-mind arts. Mm -hmm. So what do yoga, martial arts, improv comedy, body therapy, conscious dance, what do they all have in common? They all work through the body to develop the person. Okay. What we've been talking about so far. My baby That's brain they, can handle that that definition. Yeah, they do it in different <laughs> ways. The first one was a bit philosophical. <laughs> yeah. So umbrella <laughs> term you. for all that body-mind <laughs> stuff. Last one, it's a way to be smart. So it's a way of, it's a type of intelligence. So for example, the average yogi hopefully develops better self-regulation skills than the average person who doesn't have tools around like breath, for example. Mm. That makes it. And then, that. so someone that is embodied, who has had an embodiment practice, what do they look yeah. like as they interact with the world? as good looking as you Adam. So. that's what they, that's what they <laughs> embodied look right there time. i always say he's my best looking friend holly um so yeah you can be everyone's unconsciously embodied in that we all have a set of habits which are held together in our breath our posture our movement you meet someone walking down the street in surrey you can you know guess something about their culture their personality mm -hmm. Obviously, there's state, so it's short and long term. There's culture, there's environment. You know, I'm different in Portugal than at home. But all that mixes up unconsciously in someone as a way of being, mm -hmm. personality, a manner, a character. However, we can become more consciously embodied, which means we have, we're more aware of our habits. We're more aware of our way of being, our operating system, when I'm teaching techie people. Um, and we can actually influence that. So everyone's unconsciously embodied, but we can become more or less consciously embodied. So if, if we are all walking around unconsciously embodied, how do you guide people who come to you to be coached if they don't know that they're acting from these unconscious places? Do you know what I mean? I probably haven't worded yeah, that right. No, but it's perfect question. Yeah. It's a great question. Well, you know, earlier we were doing sound check and you heard your own voice and it's a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. It's a bit like that. It's a bit like like we hold a mirror up to yeah. people. So how do we do that? One is, you know, for example, we have people walk like each other and you see someone do your walk and you're like, oh my <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. who is that idiot? Is that what you, you do know? to your like, who, clients? Yeah, yeah, well, we do workshops. You have them copy each other's walk or copy oh. each other's how they stand. And it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. But we're kind about it. You know, we're not mocking anyone. There's a, there's a you know, the purpose is self-awareness, not, not to be mean. Uh, and people <laughs> see themselves and they go, oh, shit, and they face palm. But they know that it's them. Because yeah. actually, we do, we do kind of know, unless someone is really psychotically unself-aware, <laughs> like you guys, like most people, we have some self-awareness yeah. of our habits and our types. The other thing we do is we get them to do different things. So let's... I'll, keep it, I'll give a yoga example. If you get 100 people to do warrior pose, it's not called kitten pose. It's called warrior pose because mm. it has a certain quality to it, a certain embodiment, right? It's focused. It's taking up space. It's clear. It's direct. Some of them will find it really comfortable. Not physically because it's, 
you know, unless they've got shoulder problems or something, it's a pretty physically undemanding pose, right? And many, many, as it's usually taught, but emotionally, other, mm. and they'll shrink, for example, mm. their arms will come in. Other people, I remember the first time I did warrior pose, I was like, yep, I can do this one, no problem. Got it, right? This is my brand. Um, so that exposes a pattern and the first time I did just the full hanging forward bend, you know, it's about letting go of control, that pose. I was like looking around the room. I didn't wow. want to let go. Well, I was like control freak. And you'll see this, I mean, as yoga teachers, you'll see this all the time, right? People's patterns assert themselves through their inverted commas mistakes. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. So do you think that you can um, differentiate the type A personalities from the type Bs through warrior pose? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's a reason why you'll have to correct one student 50 times and not another student. Yeah. God, now, assuming their eyes work and they're not stupid, it's not a cognitive thing. It's that their being is reasserting itself. Mm. Yeah. It's deviating from what you're teaching them because it wants to be more comfortable. So yeah, absolutely. Now you have to be a little bit careful with this because some people have um, contextual factors or what's called compensatory factors. You know, it's like the, the submissive secretary who's dominatrix in bed kind of thing, you know. So there's the same, some people use yoga like that, but they use it as a sort of compensatory factor. Mm. But generally what you'll see is people revert to what's comfortable and familiar. Mm. So you've, you've said that the, uh, you talked about the rocket yoga class and the typical people that go to rocket, the typical people that go to a yin class. Do you have a typical person that comes to your style of embodiment? And how, I guess, how have you tried to appeal to the non-typical person? How have you tried to reach out further? Yeah, I mean, I've I've found it fascinating. I've been doing this for a, like full-time professionally for about 16 years, 17 years, something like that. And certainly in the early days, I found it really interesting to work with different groups of people. I wanted to kind of prove that it worked and I wanted to build my own experience. So I worked with like soldiers and police and chefs. You know, I was working in Ukraine this year, right? Like I'm always work, I've worked with a lot of business people. Um, at the end, some of it comes down simply to my kind of business model that I'm mostly training coaches, yoga teachers, dance teachers. You know, I do a little bit of corporate work still. I do a little bit of charity work still. Or I'm, you know, working with different groups. I work with the gay community a lot in Russia previously. So, you know, there's certain groups I've accidentally found myself working with and certain groups is just part of my business to work with. So like coaches and yogis, for example. Um, I found something really interesting has been making it mainstream accessible. And in the time that I've done this, it's, it's got a lot easier because the world's changed too. Indeed. Did you con? You had contact with Chris Williamson before, didn't? Were you on his podcast or he I was, was on, on his yours? Podcast a couple of years ago, I was a guest on, on a great podcast. Yeah, good we guy. had. He's, he's doing amazing now. He's yeah. doing ridiculously good things. Uh, but we we chatted to him, and he reminded me of some of you in a sense, in terms of this, the activities he was doing. I guess in sen in a sense to make himself embodied, although he didn't use that language. So he was doing, I think, improv comedy uh, yeah. as a skill. He was starting. Great practice. Because he found himself unfunny and wanted to kind of cultivate <laughs> that side of things. And he was obviously doing martial arts and weights. And then, I don't think he's got a meditative practice, although he might now. I'm not sure. But so what, breath practice. Yeah. What, what, would you, what would you advise people to do? If they're, if, if they're not coming to you, let's say, what activities do you think a kind yes. of a well-rounded embodied person would be doing in their life? You know, yoga is one, of course, martial Great. arts another. Great question. 
Okay, so if someone was totally new to it, let's say my brother-in-law comes and says, hey, I want to do, I've heard this is a good thing, you know, I want to get my body a bit more. The first thing I'd say is for anyone totally new, just do whatever you enjoy. Just do anything. You know, do you make yourself more neurotic? I don't mind. You know, just do whatever <laughs> you're actually, <laughs> someone's busy, they're a mom, they're busy, you know, got a busy job. Just do what you enjoy because life's short. And, you know, do anything that gets you in your body. All I'd say is make sure it's not so hardcore athletic that you don't develop the body sense mindfulness of the body right if it's too hardcore like some sort of you know hardcore hot yoga things you know might be too much but anything that gets you present in the body and that could be as a range from you know martial arts we talked about yoga improv etc second group of people this probably answers your question better i'd say well, what skills do you want to build for your life so I'd, I'd start people off, let's say people came to what we used to call embodied yoga principles, which is just kind of workshops on this for yogis. And I'd say, you know, what do you care about? And they'd say my job, my kids, my marriage. And I'd say, great, is your yoga helping with that? Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. they go, uh, well, it makes me more relaxed. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. That's not bad. You know, the holiday model, it's nice to chill out. We all need stress relief. Um, but then I said, well, are you really building any skills to help you as a you know, father, leader, CEO, whatever it is. Um, and what skills are missing? So, you know, Chris is smart there. He's gone, all right, maybe he's thought I need to be more playful or more humorous and to be lighter. We, If we use the four elements model, more air, I don't need that. Like for me, that's easy. Like my whole family just constantly cracking jokes. I grew up in that environment, sort of, you know, Anglo-Irish family. Mm-hmm. I can be light, I can be playful. It's not a big deal. Other things I find harder. So picking a practice which deliberately builds a skill set, like the average yogi, for example, might have really good self-awareness and self-regulation, but how are their social skills? Mm. Like they're, they're not doing a relational practice, something like, I don't know, circling or authentic relating, which is like a verbal relational practice. You don't do that in yoga. So what's circling? Some, circling, um, so it's uh, interpersonal meditation. So you're with a group of people being very present to your experience, you know, relating to each other in a very connected way. Okay. And that is normally not part of the modern postural yoga framework. And that's not to say that modern postural yoga is bad, but any practice is incomplete in that it only works on certain skills and certain qualities. And I'm going to build different skills and different qualities in elsewhere. So for people who aren't beginners, I'd say, well, look at your practice. If life's really tough right now, stick to what's easy. If you've got a little bit of energy for growth or, you know, that's important to you, do something that that challenges you. So if you don't mind me getting a little bit personal, you obviously help people get out their comfort zones, get really uncomfortable, help them grow. If you were to go to a coach right now, what would it be that you'd be working on to to grow and (laughs) get uncomfortable with? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of instability in my life right now. Like, I don't know where I'm going to be living in a few weeks. So for me, anything sort of grounding and stabilizing is very helpful. Mm. Uh, um, I've been doing weightlifting as a practice for the last year, which I used to really look down on. And now Mm -hmm. I've been really enjoying. In many ways, that's just because I enjoy it. And I just wanted something joyful and kind of easy in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the last couple of years, kind of more like what I'd call water practices, Mm -hmm. slowing down, connecting, relating, like, you know, more yin side of things. Mm -hmm. That's been, been very helpful. And I'm constantly tweaking what I'm doing in any given year, any given week, based on what I need. And sometimes it's just like life's really difficult and I'm mm. I'm just doing what's restorative. Like that's okay too, right? Mm. 
I was just going to say as a follow-up from then, so you don't always feel like you have to be, because I think that growth can be addictive sometimes. So are you mm. relatively comfortable with doing more restorative, relaxing practices when you need them? Yeah, for yeah. me, I love that. Like, I really, really enjoy those practices. I mean, meditation is one of the only consistent things I do just because I feel like awareness is the base for everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's just incredibly good for my well-being. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, we can get addicted. Always got to be better. Always got to be more. Yeah. Always got to be something else. You know, I look at a lot of the stuff in this kind of out there in the podcast, YouTube world, and it's like maximize, optimize, and it's a bit inhuman somehow. Yeah, totally. And I think there is something about just going with what's pleasurable, what you're intuitively drawn to. You know, sometimes I find I just fall in love with a practice. And mm. I, you know, I've been doing a lot of something called BMC, Body Mind Centering, the last year, just because I'm curious about it and I'm interested in it. And kind of the best practice ultimately is always the one you do. Yeah. It's why I've never. I used to be really down on yoga. I went for a point of being really down on yoga because it's it kind of modern posture yoga is great in some ways, but lacks a lot. And then I kind of went, you know what? Whatever people do is fine. <laughs> it's it's I'm kind of these days I'm a lot more chill about it. Mm. I, I I see lots of people doing trainings all the time. They I think that as, as kind of Holly said yeah. in terms of self improvement, lots of people feel I guess that they're not good enough in themselves. And rather than actually do activities because they enjoy them, people often feel a pressure to do more training, do more education, evolve mm. in that sense. Uh, I guess what would you? Because I see that a load in the yoga community, and all I say, I see that a load in the yoga community. Yeah, and yeah. I, what I want people to do really is just teach. That's what they need to do. They need to actually do the activity rather than learn about the activity. Do you see that in in kind of your community or in the world more general? People feeling that they're not completing themselves and that they need to top up with other trainings and alike when actually they just yeah, need to be in the world there is that personal growth addiction that holly alluded to there of, of i'm not good enough therefore i've got to do another training and I'll, I'll be fine just around the corner sometimes those people need a marketing course they just need to learn to sell what they've already learned uh-huh. sometimes yeah. sometimes they need a just more self-esteem building it's like no you're good enough man you don't have to be the perfect mm-hmm. yogi or have the perfect green smoothie diet or whatever you know you're good enough how you are just fucking you know eat a sandwich dude it's okay you know <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely that and then it really depends who i'm working with like as i said like the trauma work i'm doing in ukraine for example but they haven't got that they've got a very different set of priorities and the coaches i'm working with you know they're executive coaches they just want some really practical tools because mm-hmm. they they know the body is important but they kind of don't want to do anything too hippie or esoteric so mm-hmm. they're like well just give me something practical so I think it really depends on the client group. You uh, have a project called Sane Ukraine, is that right? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So my wife's Ukrainian and, um, you know, I first met her working in um, what was essentially the first part of the current war um, eight years ago. Um, I was in the Maidan protests and kind of as Ukraine sort of transformed. Um, so I got involved. First, I was doing coaching work out there. Then because of the war, they, they still said, look, can you help us with trauma stuff? And um, my wife's actually my interpreter. It was a complete setup, the whole thing. And um, we got on very well. So naturally, oh. I kept going back. Oh, I love uh, that. I sp- yeah, there's a, a, a love story there. If, if you're interested. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, he's like, yeah, he's telling me a love story. Always I was like, yeah, love. he's telling me facts. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, this year, obviously, um, Russia invaded. I wanted to do something about it. I felt uh, like a lot of people are like, hey, this is not okay. My first instinct was to go fight. 
Um, and then uh, I talked to a friend and he was like, yeah, Mark, you just get shot. You'll be a rubbish soldier, but you're actually a really good trauma teacher. So why don't you go do that? <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, that's actually really smart. Um, and so we just really quickly raised a bunch of money, uh, brought a load of medical supplies to a hospital that was cut off from supplies. Um, I've got a friend in Poland. I was old Aikido friend and um, Polish is very similar to Ukrainian. I speak a bit of Russian. So we got together delivered the supplies, trained a bunch of trauma education teachers. What we realized was talking to local therapists there, they were overwhelmed with trauma cases, obviously. Yeah. And they said, listen, not everyone can be a trauma therapist, but you can train people quite quickly to teach some of the basics of trauma education and what's called trauma first aid. Okay. Yeah, this is kind of like acute interventions. So got together with local teachers, which is always smart if you're doing a project abroad. You know, I've worked Afghanistan, West Africa, East Africa, the Middle East. So this is not new to me in a way. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much more personal than some of the other places I've been, but but not new. And we started a project, uh, did, went there a couple of times, had some fun interruptions to our trainings with rocket attacks and things like that. Oh so not the easiest environment to teach a group of people in. Uh, but actually a lot of fun. People were very dedicated. The local people really wanted to learn, very easy to teach. Um, had to do a lot of self-regulation because obviously it was pretty tense. And um, now it's a charity that's set up in Ukraine, um, owned and run by uh, local Ukrainian women. And they've taught thousands of people now uh, in schools, in hospitals, in military, with kids. Uh, they, they Now they have big contracts with the government and with the Red Cross and... Um, I mean, they're, they're turning Lviv particularly, but Ukraine more generally, into the world's most trauma-aware place. Like, I mean, it's quite incredible. Wow. And I, now I just sort of, I don't do much now. I just kind of supervise them, give them encouragement and, you know, phone them every now and again when they need a bit of support. Oh my gosh, what an amazing thing to do. So you, you mentioned their trauma first aid. So I've, I've got, obviously, obviously I've come across normal first aid. There was an increasing kind of mental health first aid movement in the UK that's been going yeah. for quite a long time. And I guess in those cases you can know when first aid is required. If it's normal first aid, you see blood, you know, <laughs> if it's <laughs> mental health first aid, there are obvious ways in which that can manifest in the moment. What, how would you identify someone needing like trauma first aid and needing work there? Yeah, well, it's two kind of basic ways. One is they've had some kind of overwhelming or life-threatening experience, which would just mean that it's pretty helpful. See, most people have what's called acute trauma responses. Uh, and then that can develop into a chronic condition, like um, maybe you've had PTSD or something like mm -hmm. that. So how the acute trauma responses are also fairly easy to spot. Um, if someone has hyperarousal, for example, they will be going at a thousand miles an hour. They will be agitated. They will be stressed. They might be anxious or irritable. They'll be quite difficult to be around actually without training. Um, or someone has numbing symptoms. They're, you know, they're closed down, they're shut down. And again, these things are not that subtle. If if you go to, you know, like, for example, some of my students were working in the railway station in Lviv and refugees are arriving from the east, or I did some work in Krakow with a refugee organization there. I mean, I walked into the center and, you know, you see people shaking, you see people frozen, you see people just agitated, all in their behaviors, you know, just not stopping. You, you'll see also, you know, self-medicating behaviors like alcohol use, mm -hmm. It's, it's not that subtle. I mean, you can teach in a few hours what the symptoms look like. I remember two days before my wedding, I, my wife said, hey, can you come talk to a group of my friends about trauma? I said, yeah, okay, sure. Turn up and there's like a whole room full of soldiers because 
one of her friends who was a hairdresser got sent to the front lines and now became a soldier. And he brought all his friends and they said, oh, I should listen to this guy. And I didn't have long because I had to sort of go sort out a ring and a suit and all that good, you know, wedding stuff. It said a couple of hours. So I, I just went through like, look, here are some of the symptoms of trauma. If you have these symptoms, you might want to get further help. Here's some people in Ukraine who can help you. And as I went through this, it took me an hour or so, the, the soldiers were just nodding, you know, that you could see that they were going, okay, yeah, 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 doing their checklist in their head. So it's, it's fairly straightforward to do trauma education. And if nothing else, it signs, it lets people know they're not crazy, right? You're not broken. And it signposts people to uh, things they can do about it. Mm. Amazing. Did you have another question around no, no, that? I was just going to uh, ask about your book, Embodiment. Um, I'd like to read a little bit from it. And if you could talk a little bit about it, that would be amazing. <laughs> oh, God, it's always <laughs> cringe hearing your own book. Oh, God, God. So you say the way mindfulness is usually taught reflects the disembodiment of the modern world. Often meditation is taught without pleasure, free flow or the body at all. Even the translated term mindfulness reflects yeah. this. So can you speak a little bit about that? I found that interesting. Sure, yeah. so that's my first book, Embodiment, Moving Beyond Mindfulness. There's a second one for trainers and coaches and a third one on meditation. Just a quick plug to the books. Mm-hmm, uh, that one is actually, that one is a free PDF on our website, actually, oh. uh, Embodiment Unlimited. There's a free PDF of the first book, but the others you have to buy. Um, so what I was referring to there is uh, the Pali word, I think it's sati, isn't necessarily translated as mindfulness in the English so we now take that word for granted. But if you look at the word mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? It's not heartfulness. Yeah. It's not body mindfulness. Okay. Bodyfulness, I've heard said before. <laughs> it's mindfulness. It was translated by some nice, you know, old Victorian English gentleman, no doubt. Yeah. Um, I think remembrance or coming back to is more close mm. to the actual meaning. Coming back to is what I understand. Yeah. Sort of told by scholars who know more than me. Um, so yeah the modern mindfulness movement has this kind of abstraction like i'm over here being mindful of my body not as a body yeah and that can have a kind of cold removed quality um yeah i guess that's all i have to say about it really Mm. and for me kind of juicier movement active (laughs) engaged there's, there's there's other ways to be uh to approach it can can we mention, come back to trauma for a moment? So there is the extremes, I guess, of trauma first aid and working with people who are very obviously experiencing trauma. There's a lot more, I guess, trauma awareness in yoga and beyond. And I guess my question here now is how can someone who is a, a public teacher in a you know, public dropping classes be trauma aware and be sensitive of it so i've put a few social media posts out there like just you know one of them advice for teachers and one of them advice for students yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, people say well that's actually trauma insensitive if you make someone stay on their mat in shavasana i guess how do we both acknowledge <laughs> the unique experience of someone we're having based on their unique body and their unique life and be sensitive to that but also hold space in a public domain in an open drop-in setting not be not be ridiculous um <clears throat> yeah so when i first started doing yoga which was over 20 years ago yoga was so trauma unaware i was shocked because i'd come from a background of working in war zones and some trauma awareness i remember one time i was in london and i was in downwards dog and this teacher just without any kind of consent like nestled in behind me <laughs> like it was some sort of prison scene in the showers you know and then started adjusting me and i was just like this is deeply inappropriate or another time you know i was in um 
what was it? Was it Sikta Badakasana? No, it was a lying down with my knees crossed. I forget the name of the pose. And the teacher came to adjust me to push my knees down towards my chest. And I said, hey, can you not do that? Because I knew it would crush my testicles. <laughs> and this female teacher who didn't have a little pot belly and big balls and big thighs um, <laughs> kind of basically said, I know what I'm doing. Oh. And she proceeded. And I just went, you don't have permission no. to touch me, to let alone squash my balls. And that was so normal back then, this sort of guru model of the teacher knows best and that, you know lack of consent culture, lack of awareness of boundaries. And I really pushed back about it. And at the time, I upset a lot of yogis, you know, they really threw their toys out the pram and said, I'll do what I want as a teacher and I don't have to ask permission for anything. And then it kind of, yoga got more trauma informed and almost went too far. You know, almost like now I see, I call it trauma pandering rather than trauma sensitive. There's, there's an idea of like, yes, we can make what's called reasonable adjustments in HR. Yes, we could be trauma aware, we can be consent informed. I think those things are very good. Like I give people opt outs, you know, sometimes opt ins. I'm aware that certain issues or poses might bring up certain themes, but we shouldn't be, I guess, I want to assume basic robustness, mm. right? If I shake someone's hand, I'm not like, can I touch you in the hand area? <laughs> like, that's just weird. <laughs> Like, don't weird people out or assume <laughs> they're... I mean, unless you're... Like, if I'm working with a, a group of lesbians in Moscow, I can assume very high levels of trauma. Mm -hmm. And I might teach that class quite differently in my language mm -hmm. and in my body, in my own embodiment, in what instructions I give and how I, I... I don't assume that people necessarily are able to say no easily or whatever. Um, whereas if I'm just teaching a regular public class or a workshop for coaches, I'm assuming a level of robustness and that stops it getting kind of ridiculous. I also think what we've got in, in the whole embodiment world, including yoga, is a sort of hypersensitivity now, a kind of weaponized sensitivity, and it becomes more a way of controlling people and telling them they're wrong and enforcing sort of hardcore politics mm. than it is really about being kind. Mm. So I, I've, I've seen it from going from one extreme to another in the last 15 years. The pendulum swing. I, I, bit of a long-winded answer but no no no, no that's, that, that's perfect and i think i think it is i i think in law we talk about the average reasonable person i say we in law and okay. that's my background of law okay. and in, in intellectual property like if let's say a yes. coca-cola sign and someone yeah. call calls their bag brand coca-cola would would the average reasonable person assume that that bag was linked to the coca-cola soft right. brand so i think we have to almost do that with yoga of course there is no average person but if we're teaching a public dropping class well, in any setting, we have to treat the average reasonable person. Of course, adapting based on what we see, yes. of course. And, you know, I, I, I always say to teachers, there are certain things that are more likely to trigger someone than others. For instance, I don't turn the lights off in Shavasana fully because chances are turning the lights off in a room of strangers is more mm -hmm. likely to trigger, trigger someone. I don't play songs with particular lyrics because that, again, is likely yeah. to trigger someone. Yeah. I don't touch people with their eyes closed anymore. I used to in Shavasana, yeah. give a little head massage. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the average reasonable person is an important consideration. That time you tweaked my nipples in Shavasana, <laughs> man, that was not okay. <laughs> I just slipped my phone number into people's heads in Shavasana. That's how, that's how Holly and I met. <laughs> not okay. Yeah, I mean, basic ethics is good. I mean, the average person does have some trauma. So, you know, there's, there's pretty high incidence of trauma and much higher, particularly 
the most men might guess actually higher levels amongst women um but it's pretty high across the board it's some trauma so it's worth being trauma informed mm. i think it should be part of every teacher training mm, just some definitely. basics uh, and then as you say we then have that in the background but run our you know coach training yoga trainings whatever with average reasonable person kind of in mind making accommodation and if people come up to me and you know ask you know i also think some of the responsibility if you have something that unusual going on is also on the student to let you know mm, like mm-hmm. hey um i find any touch from a man to be deeply threatening so please never adjust me mm. and i can be like okay cool like even if they're normally working with an opt-in rather than an opt-out you know, even being informed on that can be really helpful so you're extra mm-hmm. extra sensitive to that student um, but yeah, but I mean, basic education is out there. It's free. You can get it on YouTube. There's loads of great trauma teachers. There's sort of no excuse, I'd say, for mm-hmm. for not knowing the basics on, now. On the on the note of great trauma teachers, I didn't realize at the time you, well, you had your conference uh, a while back and you had Gabriel Marte mm. on there. And I didn't realize oh, he him. was on there. Uh, he did a session with me. Yeah, oh, I, God. The, the host. I ended up hosting it, not realizing, and all of a sudden I got called in to host it. Pressure. And we, he said, "Oh well, let's have a volunteer to do some some work." And I was, uh, and I, I was like, "How are we going to do this?" So you'll kind of you'll do. And I ended up doing sort of therapy in front of. I mean, the conference had a million people, half oh a million people God. signed up for it, and wow. God knows how many thousands saw that set. I mean, it's on YouTube now; people can find it. They put Mark Walsh, Gabo Mate. We ended up putting it on YouTube in the end. And it was really interesting. It's like, well, where are my boundaries? Well, I'm so many people are here. There's a huge vulnerability to that. But interestingly, though it was not planned, it helped the whole conference drop down a level of depth after that. And there was I think there was a trust in me as a leader based on the fact I was willing to do Mm. that. Yeah. We'll have to watch that. We'll have to watch some that wine tonight. <laughs> can we, can we watch go... Mark freak out and be really nervous in front of all these people. Can we go back yeah. a little so, bit? I mean, there's loads of other great teachers out there people can can look up as well. Mm. And, you know, I've met most of them, interviewed most of them, either for the Embodiment Podcast, Quick Plug, uh, all for the conferences we've done. And these guys have become like rock stars now. Yeah, wow. You know, these guys are in a different league now. It's very hard to get hold of a lot of the big name. In some ways, I feel like the trauma world has got almost too big, too political, you know. I mean, Gabo Matty, God love him, was on Joe Rogan the other day. You yeah, know, I know, it's gone we listened. And Tim Ferriss, he was on yeah, Tim Ferriss as well. huge. Yeah, 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 Tim Ferriss also did some work live with him. Um, and, I, you know, I actually sent Gabo an, e- an email after Tim Fer- um, the the um, uh, Joe Rogan one saying, hey, well done for getting this out to the mainstream to so many people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a fantastic thing. I, I, sometimes it's getting a little excessive or a little politicized, but... Um, you know, certainly I couldn't have imagined when I first started studying trauma, like 20 odd years ago, I couldn't have imagined that it would become mainstream. And mostly that's a good thing. Mm. Like the people in Ukraine learning about trauma in a way that people in other wars haven't, that's a good thing. Can we go back a little bit um, to some of your journey? You said you were an alcoholic and suicidal. So did you have a turning point as such, which navigated you towards the path that you're on? Was there a moment or was it quite a gradual blending into what you do now? Well, I walked into an Aikido school and it just kind of made sense to me and I just was called to it. Mm. And I think following that inner calling, if that's not too cheesy, that body yes, is really important for all of us to find a life of purpose and health and well-being and it, it took me a few years after that to get sober and then there was um 
there was a point where I kind of hit rock bottom and I'd come back from working in Africa. I had tapeworms. My mum had a tumor. I'd had a car accident and almost died. So I had a kind of existential wake up. And then um, I just said to myself, well, you know, get busy living or get busy dying, as as they say in the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And I just made a choice to kind of sober up and really double down on the embodiment work because that had a lot of meaning to me mm-hmm. and um, was starting to bear some fruit that was positive in my life. So I said, you know what, this this seems like the way to go. And I've had a wonderful life since then, you know, teaching all over the world, writing books, interviewing all these interesting people we're talking about. So that's led to a lot of um, beautiful fruits in my life. Now you've you've been able to take it from I guess a one to one coaching or small group coaching to as you just said a conference that had like half a million people in attendance. You you've travelled all over the world. What do you think has made you so? I, I hate to use the word successful because you know what does success mean? Is it is it how big your car is? But what's made you do so well in this world, uh, in in the embodiment world? What's enabled you to build the businesses you have and scale it? Yeah, I mean, I love what I do, and I'm, I've been very driven on that. Um, though as I get older, I'm kind of easing back a bit off that. I mean, fully committing to whatever you do, being obsessed with it and loving it and just being generous with it. I think that's good advice for anyone out there who really wants to get into what they do. I agree with you, success can be defined in different ways. And I think many of the ways I've come across a lot of what seems like success isn't always that great in terms of you know i get recognized every now and again like you know i had a stalker i've had hate campaigns i've had all sorts oh yeah and it's it's not a lot of fun (laughs) i don't recommend it um and then you know end up just running a business instead of being an embodiment teacher you know it's one thing i've been trying to get away from so i think there's things to be careful of with inverted commas success um but i think yeah that's also i've I've been authentic Mm -hmm. and it's got me in trouble at times but i've always had my own style like you know, I'm I'm not using the yoga voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there's, like, there's loads of great teachers in Northern California, but sometimes people want dick jokes. You know, and that's why they that's <laughs> why they come. And to you me. are the person to deliver. <laughs> so, so, I mean, <laughs> pragmatism and humor is kind of my brand, and and that's not for everyone. It's sort of warrior jester archetypes. It's not for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of crack. Mm. You know, but it's it's some people love it and some people don't. And in some ways, being divisive is helpful. Yeah. Um, People talk about you. Know people if people, I'm people talk really. about you, don't they? When you when you people, they, yeah, you'll you'll get complaints from me being on. People love it. I hate it's a little bit Marmite Mark sometimes. <laughs> and people say, Oh, you're really controversial. It's like I'm trying not to be. Like what's in my head is way worse than what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know, just naturally I shoot my mouth off sometimes. And sometimes that's refreshing is a word I get yeah. a lot. Other times people are like, oh, I don't like that guy. He's not politically correct. Well, you can't be everything to everyone, can you? And you don't need to be. To be successful, no. you don't need that many people to like you. You just need a number of people to be really invested in you. And that's it. You can only marry one hunky, dark-haired yoga teacher. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the, the truth, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're not, you're not, you're not pizza. Not everyone loves you. With children now so we've got a new baby and we want we, we're very conscious that we want to be the best people for him as possible and yeah we're, we're yeah. doing all right so far like we are decent human beings that live a fairly kind of self-aware existence but I, obviously dr gable marte talks a lot about children and upbringing you know he hates sleep training etc what would you say i guess has any of that work that you've done so far been related to kind of parents and bringing up that next generation mm-hmm. and how to teach the next generation to be embodied 
Yeah, I find as a non-parent giving any kind of parenting advice is a horrible <laughs> idea. So um, I generally don't. Um, I would say that there's, uh, as you say, like you go, it goes a basic consciousness awareness embodiment, basic ethics seems to go a long way. I mean, I've worked with 50,000 children more or less around the world. So I've seen the impact of different types of parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say there's a sort of left and a right way of looking at things in life in general for anything. You know, Gabor is very much on the left side. Someone like Jordan Peterson would be more on the conservative side. Mm-hmm. And I think they kind of both have something to say mm-hmm. if we just take those two Canadians as kind of polar extremes in some ways. <laughs> and I think if you look at any topic, whether it be politics or yoga or parenting or anything, if we discount half the world and half the teachers and half the human experience, maybe something is missed. Mm. Oh, I love that. Sure. Let's talk. Let's do some little quick fires now. Yeah. I'm intrigued. I read somewhere that you kissed a princess. Are you able to <laughs> share? who this princess this lucky princess was uh a gentleman doesn't talk about such things uh, it was in africa and it's not someone super famous fair enough <laughs> wonderful best thing you've purchased in the last year that has made some kind of difference it isn't like overtly expensive uh, best thing i've purchased uh noise reduction headphones <laughs> i just don't like being in noisy spaces all the time <laughs> and that they're my main thing i'm packing when i'm going on a trip Oof. yeah don't be a parent then like last last night we we're driving home for 40 minutes with wailing oh yeah gosh. Overstim- <laughs> we, to be fair we took our baby to a light show which might have been slight overstimulation At for three months old yeah. your, yeah. your baby is now raving <laughs> hardcore i think he's still going i think yeah <laughs> um what is one of your non-negotiable self-care things that you cannot not do every day i worded that so badly uh orgies with dolphins great um (laughs) washing eating uh walking meditating like they're the basics right and the little final one is there any kind of motto uh phrase lyric quotation that kind of gets you going that or that is meaningful to you in some sense no (laughs) Perfect way to end. No. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't want to say something glib. I don't know. We can leave it with no. I like that. I like no fluff. No fluff. You're driven by by, by yourself, (laughs) not by anything external. Not by cheesy lines like Airbnbs now put on the wall. Like there's one over there. Live, laugh. Love, live, laugh, love. I mean, these <laughs> I saw That's a wonderful. I saw a wonderful video of a guy going around his mom's house, which was basically live, laugh, and love in about forty different ways in forty different fonts <laughs> on little things all around the house. Yeah, it's, it will become a bit meaningless. Do you know what I mean? Like the sort of personal growth platitude. So, no is my answer to that. Perfect, <laughs> lovely. And let's talk about what you've got an offer at the moment. So, how can people find you, or what what are your current offerings? Yeah, um, Crime Watch, Tinder, <laughs> um, porn. Um, no, so the main the main place to, the main place to go is embodimentunlimited.com. Um, there you'll find a bunch of free stuff. So free book is links to our podcast, embodiment podcast, to people like that, people like the books. If you basically shout the word embodiment into the universe anywhere, um, then stuff will come up. But I'd say the best one, because it's got a bunch of free resources, is embodimentunlimited.com. And then Amazing. you just to so just to upsell you a little bit, you've got three books out there, you've got the podcast, you've got the courses. 
you have your Post Instagram. Is a big one. Yeah, if people want to learn embodied coaching and yogis, if there's yogis listening to this, they learn real quick because they've got a lot of the basic skills already. We train loads of yogis. So the coaching courses that people can find on there, we've got a major one starting at the beginning of Feb. It's our like main teacher training. So we do that, but we've always got stuff going on. Is that in person uh, or in- online? That's online with in-person options. That's mm-hmm. what we've go for now. So I do, you know, about 10, 12 in-person things a year, but some people can't make those. The, the, the sort of spine of it's online and then people can deepen it in person if they like. And uh, yeah, on the gram, uh, if people I, if people send me brief questions, I always answer them on Instagram, but they need to be like one or two sentences, not their life stories about their childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope to actually see you in person again when our calendars align. Really nice to see you guys. Really great interview questions as well. It's fun. So uh, yeah, pleasure.